Pound the Rock is brought to you by The Score Bet. That's right. We brought you the best sports media app. Now we're bringing you the best sports book. The Score Bet offers a safe and secure mobile sports book experience with both pregame and in-play markets. And best of all, it's integrated into The Score and our content to give you the easiest and most seamless sports betting experience. Take advantage of exciting promotions and odds boosts all season long. Download now on iOS and Android. Available in Colorado, Indiana, Iowa, and New Jersey. Must be 21 or older. If you or someone you know has a gambling problem and wants help, contact 1-800-522-4700 in Colorado. 1-800-BETS-OFF in Iowa. 1-800-9-WITH-IT in Indiana. And 1-800-GAMBLER in New Jersey. Visit thescore.bet for more details. And welcome to Pound the Rock, the Scores NBA podcast. I'm Joe Wolfond, and I am on no sleep. And I'm joined, as always, by my seemingly equally exhausted co-host, Joseph Cacharo. Talk to me, Cash. Yes. Uh, well, maybe not equally no sleep. I think you are doing worse for wear in the sleep department than I am. And understandably so, given that you have a, what, five-month-old? Yeah, five months yesterday, but uh, how's that sleep schedule going for you, Wolfon? You were just telling me about this off air. Yeah, unfortunately, that milestone has come with a pretty major sleep regression, so um, that hasn't been the most pleasant. But everything apart from that has been fantastic. But yeah, you know, I'm I'm feeling the effects recording this on a Friday morning at the end of a long week. But we have important matters to discuss. We have lots of NBA happenings to catch up on obviously our last episode wasn't focused on the micro uh, of the league going on right now we talked to Alex Wong about his recent book and I think you know diving back into the kind of day-to-day minutiae of the NBA is something I'm excited to do so what do you say should we get into that let's get into it all right I think we got to start here the Phoenix Suns have won 14 games in a row and it's it's kind of funny because they, they started off the season looking fairly wobbly. Their their first four games, they went one and three. It looked a little bit disjointed. People are talking about championship hangover. You know, was it a fluke, et cetera. That, like all the, all the stuff that you'd expect from a team coming off a surprise finals run. And then they rip off these 14 straight wins. And I, I will say, I don't think they have looked all that impressive doing it. Part of that maybe is because it's been over pretty blah competition. You know, like even the would-be quality wins have come over teams missing their best players. Like they beat Dallas without Luka twice. Uh, they beat the crap out of the Nuggets without Jokic. And then most recently, they they squeaked out a win over a Cavs team playing without Mobley and Sexton. So... Um, and I think per basketball reference, their strength of schedule so far is the easiest in the league. That said, you know, 14 straight is 14 straight. And I think we know who the Suns are. They're rock solid on both sides of the ball. And there's kind of maybe a way that you could spin that as a positive where you're saying, you know, they've won 14 straight and it doesn't feel at all like they're doing anything unsustainable or playing over their heads. In fact, it feels like they can actually play a lot better and the competition is 
obviously going to get tougher. So the losses will come even if they do play better. But I think regardless of schedule strength to be here at 15 and three, eighth on offense, third on defense, and still have it feel like kind of ho-hum, this is what they're supposed to be doing, is a pretty good place to be. So what do you think about the Suns, what you've seen from them so far, this winning streak, and what it does or doesn't portend about the rest of their season? Yeah, I think I'm in the same boat as you, where it's like they, the actual eyeball test and like the way they're getting it done almost seems less convincing than last year. And yet they're 18 and three. They've won 14 straight, as you mentioned, top 10 on both sides of the ball, one of four teams to do that right now. And yeah, the flip side is you could look at it and say, well, the team that just went to the finals, that is very much still the same team uh, operating in the same way is 18 and three without playing their best ball. Sorry, 15 and three without playing their best ball. So uh, I'm not concerned about them, obviously. The one thing I think is really interesting is for whatever reason, they're a lot more starter dependent this year in terms of minutes, not in terms of performance. So if you recall last year when, you know, campaign had this awesome kind of like uh, breakthrough comeback season and, you know, Dario Saric had this awesome stretch five kind of season off the bench and that small ball look they had off the bench dominated opposing benches. They were a very, in the regular season, kind of like starter bench balance team. Obviously your starters are going to play more, but they, they were able to balance lineups a lot. You know, Chris Paul and Devin Booker didn't necessarily have to play a ton of minutes in the regular season um, because they had a number of different lineups and lineup combinations that were just throttle teams. And I think what's interesting this year is if you look at the numbers, so they're, they're starting five of Chris Paul, uh, Devin Booker, Kale Bridges, Jay Crowder, DeAndre Ayton has actually been outscored by about three points per 100 possessions. And, and their bench units, by the way, have continued to kill teams. I think their best bench unit is almost like plus 13 per 100. Their starting five, just with Aiton replaced by Kaminsky, is actually like plus 25. But the interesting thing is that their starting lineup has played about 240 minutes together. Their next most used lineup has only played like 60. And it's just interesting to me that the bench is still doing what it's doing. The starting unit, for whatever reason, isn't performing up to expectations. I don't think that's necessarily going to last all season. We know it's a good unit. Yeah. Well, also, like, that happened last year, too, where at the beginning of the season, like, the units with Paul and Booker on the floor together were not performing nearly as well as, like, the solo Paul and Booker minutes. That's and why so, they were, like, only, like, 500 through about... 16 or 18 games this season yeah and then that totally normalized as the season went along it is a little strange like last year you could at least point to okay they're getting used to playing together and playing off of each other whereas obviously you would expect that that familiarity would be there from the jump this season but I don't think that's necessarily something to worry about considering how well we've seen those guys play together in the past but you know to your point about the minutes with Kaminsky in Aiton's place and even like with McGee in Aiton's place. Yeah. Those guys have been awesome, man. And I, I would say one of my concerns about the Suns coming into this season was what are they going to do at backup center? How are they going to replace those excellent Sarge minutes from last year? And so far, I mean, <laughs> it's uh, it's just come up roses for them. Like McGee has been so solid. Kaminsky, I think, is actually dealing with a foot injury now, so he's out, but Aiton is back after missing a few games, and like their big man rotation has just been ironclad, really, at both ends of the floor, I think. So that's that's been a big part of their success. 
Yeah, and Aiton's coming on now too. I thought he actually started the season Agreed. a bit slow or off looking, and and now he's picked it up on both ends. He's actually their second leading scorer right now. Um, it's uh, I think things are like gelling as the season goes for them, which is a good look. And yeah, as we both mentioned, now they're they've got off to this just incredible start. They're on this incredible run, and really, it doesn't feel like or look like they're playing their best ball yet. And can't really ask for much more if you're a Suns fan right now. Yeah, I want to speak to that Aiton point, actually, because I, I also thought he got off to a kind of bumpy start, but I can't remember what injury he had. He missed six games, and then he came back. And I think since he's come back, he's looked way, way better. Just like blotting out the rim on defense. He's been a monster on the glass, offensive and defensive glass. And I think maybe more important than anything like recently he's starting to get more assertive on offense like he's carving out some deep post seals uh on the back end of switches and i think the suns are actually starting to look for him a bit more on those switches like they're using him in the pick and roll more than they have in the past so that's been good to see and then you know there was one play against the spurs uh last week that caught my eye where um, I can't remember if it was Paul or Booker, but but they got blitzed in the pick and roll and then hit Aiden on the short roll. So he had a four on three. And Derek White came over to tag from the strong side. So there's Aiden, right? He's catching the ball, like sort of free throw line, top of the key. And White is there with like the early help. And Jay Crowder is then open in the corner. But instead of sort of acquiescing to that rotation and making like the obvious corner kick out, Aiton was kind of like, there's no fucking way that Derek White is going to stop me from dunking the ball. And so he just kept rolling. And White actually eventually jumped out of the way. Like he retreated to Crowder because he was expecting that kickout pass to come. And Aiton just went and dunked. And I think, you know, maybe you could you could replay that same possession and it could have played out in such a way that like Derek White stayed in the lane and drew a charge or he forced a missed layup and you would have been like, well, Aiton really should have made that obvious kickout pass. But I actually think even if it had gone that way, I just think that assertiveness is good to see from Aiden because it hasn't always been there. And I think that's a really important ingredient for this Phoenix team. And it's going to be crucial for them moving forward and to, to their hopes of, I think, repeating what they did last season. So I've liked seeing that from him. I, I will say, I mean, the, the one potentially concerning thing, and the thing I guess that Aiton's assertiveness and, and working the back end of switches has has or could, you know, help alleviate is just the the rim frequency, because they yeah. they don't get to the rim very often at all. Uh, and I mean, they were dead last last year in rim frequency, and they still made it to the finals, so maybe it's not a big concern. But uh, if one team can get away with it. Well, other, I was going to say in the West, because in the East, the team with Kevin Durant and James Harden probably can. But if yeah. one team in the West can get away with it, it's the one with Chris Paul and Devin Booker just absolutely causing you death by a thousand mid-range pull-ups. Like, well, that's the th- and it's funny you mentioned Brooklyn, right? Because uh, I think Phoenix is 28th now in rim frequency and Brooklyn's 29th. And Dallas is the only team behind those two teams at 30th. But yeah, like, and those, the Suns especially, like they're, they have one of the lowest three point attempt rates in the league as well. Like they are really subsisting on a heavy diet of mid range jumpers. And obviously like this is most evident with Chris Paul, who is 36 years old and just does not have the juice to blow by guys off the dribble anymore. And like that can, even if it's a plotting big man switching out onto him, like he's not 
taking that guy to the rim. He's still just snaking for that elbow jumper. And it's more or less worked out okay because he's so good at shooting those mid-range jumpers and he's got a nice floater in his bag. 58% true shooting despite the fact that he has attempted 189 field goals this season. How many of those field goals do you think have come in the restricted area? 189. In the restricted area, not just the paint, the actual restricted area? Yes. 5 to 10. Correct. 6 is the Jeez, answer. Yeah. He he's in the 0th percentile among, <laughs> among guards in rim frequency and I think actually the majority of those, like maybe all but two of them have come in transition. So it's like, he's not getting to the rim in the half court at all. And I just sort of, I I do wonder about that as much as it's like working for them so far. I just feel like, like as the defense, knowing that, do you kind of just live with with your big switching on to CP or like playing a shallow drop and late switching it, knowing that he's just going to snake for the mid range jumper and and not burn you going to the rim. Like, I don't, I know that's, that's his money shot, but you can play the pick and roll two on two while still getting a pretty good contest on that shot. And, you know, if, if you are playing it two on two and you're staying home on the catch and shoot three point shooters and you're just giving up a contested mid range pull up, like I, I I feel like you can't be too upset with conceding that. And then, how does that math work out long-term for Phoenix is sort of something I'm wondering about. Yeah, I, I think I, I, I have faith enough in Chris Paul's just like pure ingenuity to to kind of figure it out and figure out what works. And if the defense does start maybe making decisions that don't benefit Phoenix in the long run, I, I just can't see Chris Paul not figuring it out. You know what I mean? Even if maybe the physical limitations are there, I just feel like he'll find a way to to master the game in some way when orchestrating that offense. Yeah. I mean, I just think regardless, like sending two to the ball when Chris Paul is orchestrating is, it just feels like it's always a mistake. It's at, not at necessary point, to be honest. It's not necessary. Um, because I, I don't think you want to open up those skips and like the, the swing sequences that are get, like, cause they're a good jump shooting team, man. And like, they, again, they yeah. don't take a ton of threes relative to the rest of the league, but they will knock them down. And I, I, I just feel like you're better off. Like if you can play those pick and rolls two on two, like, okay, if Chris Paul's going to beat you by drilling a hundred mid range pull-ups, I just, I kind of feel like maybe you have to live with that. Um, and he will, but I, but I agree with you. Well, and it's just funny to me because if you look at Phoenix's defensive profile, like they're thriving defensively because they are coaxing opponents into the exact kinds of shots that they themselves are willingly <laughs> take willingly taking or in some cases hunting at the other end of the floor. And I think that's interesting, obviously because the Suns are just way better at it than the teams yeah. that they're playing, but because they know I mean, that they, Chris Paul and Devin Booker are on their side of the court. Yeah. Um, so I think that's interesting. And uh, I'll also say what's really working for them is that they are devastating in transition. Like they don't run a ton, but when they do, they are so, so good. And I think um, Booker and bridges in particular are just great at getting to the cup and finishing when they're out in the open floor. Bridges, I think, has been awesome. Like, he's getting better and better as an off-the-catch attacker. I think, you know, initiating for him is still a long way off and maybe never going to come, but 
obviously this Phoenix team doesn't need him to do much more than be adept at attacking off of the catch. And I think he's been great at that. He's shooting it well. Um, And Booker, I I love watching Booker play because he's such an incredible off ball mover, just super unpredictable, multi-directional gets his feet set and like squared to shoot so quickly So he's just been a delight to watch. And yeah, I'm excited to see this team play some stiffer competition because I want to know how real all this stuff is. Um, Well, you're going to get your chance. I know. (laughs) Because, I mean, look, not that I'm saying that, I mean, I don't think the Knicks are good, but uh, a back-to-back in New York is a tough back-to-back. Knicks Friday night in what should be a raucous garden and then the Nets Saturday night. Then next week they get the Warriors. Uh, I think they get the Warriors twice in the next, like, yeah, they get the Warriors twice in a four-day span. Yeah, so yeah, that's that's, that's going to be super fun. Uh, and yeah. the Nets game is also going to be super fun because yeah. that's going to be... Okay, so this is like Phoenix's defensive strategy is to like, you know, right. coax opponents into the kind of shots that they're feasting on. Well, let's see what Brooklyn can do with that. Mm-hmm. That's going to be super fun. And like the Warriors, the Warriors are an interesting counterpoint because they're obviously a, a very good jump shooting team as well, but they're getting in the rim a ton. Yeah, And they sort of use their shooting gravity and obviously primarily Steph's shooting gravity to open up slips and cuts to the rim. And, you know, Phoenix just doesn't really do that. Like they don't use their shooting gravity to kind of open up Aiton on the roll. Like they're a good cutting team, but most of their screening actions are designed to get their guards jump shots. Um, So I'm curious to see what that looks like against that steeper competition, but uh, Hey, 14 wins in a row. Kudos to the Suns. I think we can leave that there. What do you think? Yeah, I think so. The only thing I was going to throw in there, and we're not talking about them today, but the Warriors just like killing teams, dominating both sides of the floor, and teasing teams as well. Like when they play lesser competition, very much like spotting them like 15-point leads and then just absolutely obliterating them in the second half and as the game goes on and it ended up yeah. like third the, quarter warriors back yeah like the other night against philly was a perfect example the, the sixers are missing their like th- three best players four of their best five players whatever it was get off to a big early lead and the warriors still end up winning by like 15 or whatever it was them doing all those things like it's 2015 again except without clay thompson having played a single second for them yet this season is just absurd it's absurd yeah, and we we went sort of deep on the Warriors our last or two episodes ago, so we don't need to get too deep into it now. But it's like I don't know. Every Warriors game I watch, it just feels like there's more to unpack about right. the nuances and what they're doing and how connected they are. Uh, how good Andrew Wiggins has been, the downhill element that Jordan Poole is giving them, Gary Payton the second. Like, yeah. man, it's uh, it's crazy. They're they're so good. And Juan Toscano Anderson. Yeah, the the depth is kind of crazy, man. Yeah. Um, you know, Bielitsa and Porter filling out the back of that bench. Yeah. Like, so yeah, it's gonna be fun when Clay gets back, and it's gonna be really fun to watch those games they play against Phoenix. What's up, Pound the Rock listeners? Just a friendly reminder to rate, review, and subscribe to the show on iTunes, SoundCloud, Stitcher, Spotify, or wherever else you get your podcasts. You can also check out the Scores Fantasy Football Podcast with Justin Boone. And in case you haven't already, download the Score app, available on iPhone and Android. That's where you can find all of our feature content, as well as live scores, updates, and breaking news. And don't forget to check out the Score's YouTube page for an informative, yet lighthearted dive into the sports world's trending topics. Now back to the show. 
those aren't exactly the types of teams that we're going to talk about on the rest of this episode. We're going to hit on the most confounding teams in the league, the teams that have left us scratching our heads the most. And just, it doesn't even necessarily have to be good or bad stuff. I think in most of these cases, it's probably going to be a mixture of both. But just the teams that, you know, by definition are leaving us very confounded and have been super difficult to figure out for one reason or another. So I've got a list of teams. I know you've got a list of teams. I'll shoot it to you first, Cash. Who is, in your mind, the most confounding team in the NBA so far this season? You know what? I'm going to start with the team that plies its trade where we are both sitting right now, and that's in Toronto. <laughs> so so they were on my list too, and um, I just want to like, before you launch into whatever you're going to say about Go them. Go for it. Go for it. So... <laughs> the, the Raptors are are 28th in pace, 27th in three-point attempt rate, 22nd in free throw attempt rate, 24th in effective field goal percentage, and tied for 6th in offensive rating. Correct. That's and that's why I included them. It's not even like they like I'm not confounded by what they are. I feel like they actually no. have a pretty strong and clear identity. Yep. I don't think they're ne- they're not really any better or worse than I expected them to be this season. It's just the confounding thing is how how is that happening? Like though that offensive profile does not make sense, and the pace is actually very misleading. I've I've talked about this before. Like. They're tied with the Hornets for frequency of time, uh, frequency of possessions spent in transition. Yeah, and I think if you look at cleaning the glass, like they're they're playing the fewest number of half court uh, possessions in the league. So like the pace is being dragged down by all their offensive rebounds. That's obviously elongating their offensive possessions, and then the fact that their defense is forcing opponents to work deep in the clock. Unfortunately, doing so doesn't seem to have actually led to any kind of defensive success because, and this is the other crazy stat. So I mentioned they're 24th in effective field goal percentage. They're 29th in opponent effective field goal percentage. And somehow, despite those two things, they still have a positive scoring margin on the season. So that's crazy. Anyway, I just, I had to throw those stats out there because they're mind boggling, but uh, I will let you pick up where you left off. Yeah, well, them being 29th in opponent effective field goal percentage might have to do with the fact they're giving up way too many shots from the corners and at the rim. Yes. Um, and that... Well, not they're not giving up a ton of shots at the rim, actually. They're just... Opponents are shooting like 70%. Well, there. yes. They're giving up a ton of corner threes. Yeah. They are giving up a way too high percentage at the rim, which I guess isn't that surprising given that they don't have uh, a ton of rim protection. But uh, I think... Yeah, they're confounding on, on many levels, none of which has to do with their actual record or overall performance. But as you mentioned, the fact that their offense is this good, top seven, in the, they have a top seven offense and a bottom seven defense right now. Mm-hmm. And that is the exact inverse of what I think most people would have expected from this team coming into the season. Now, I think you and I both were in agreement that their offense was going to be better than expected, but I don't think either one of us thought it would be anywhere near this good. Everyone looked at this roster and had obvious concerns about the half-court offense and the offense in general. And then if you throw onto that mix the fact that if someone had told you one of Pascal Siakam or OG Ananobi was basically going to miss every game through the first quarter of the season, you'd be like, well, that's even, that you know, we knew Pascal was going to be out. And then OG is going to be out for like a week plus when Pascal comes back. How is this offense going to find ways to score? And the fact they've done it the way they've done it 
is almost miraculous. Like even even when you like look into the nitty gritty, like offensively, like their center play hasn't been great. Which you know, okay, that's to be expected. But like uh, OG and Pascal missing time. You know, Fred having this like masterful floor general season and now starting to shoot the lights out. But he was a little unsteady to start the season too. Um, the bench hasn't always given them good minutes. Okay, Gary Trent Jr. is like shooting the absolute piss out of the ball and is like the league leader in no, 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 okay, yes shots. But like that alone shouldn't result in what the Raptors offense is. So the fact that their offense is top seven is confounding enough. But then on the flip side of it, the fact that they have a bottom seven defense with this personnel, even with one of OG or Siakam out of the lineup, is equally confounding. And I hear the complaints. I see them, you know, whether you're watching a Raptors game and keeping one eye on Raptors Twitter, which is always entertaining, if not depressing. And you see the complaints about like why they continue to play this style. But the the fact of the matter is like personnel wise, the Raptors have the goods to maybe not play this style all the time, but to play this style of defense a lot better than they're playing it. And so that to me is the confounding. This is not Nick Nurse trying to make a very immobile team play a aggressive brand of defense that needs mobility and athleticism and length. The Raptors have the personnel to check most of those boxes. Again, do they have to be as aggressive at times? No. Do they have to send traps to some of the players they trap? No, I get that. Like, But they have the personnel to pull it off more often than not. And the fact that they are not doing it other than here and there, like, okay, the, night in, uh, the other night in Memphis was a perfect example. The first half of that game was absolutely embarrassing from a defensive perspective. And then in the second half, they very much looked like the defensive team we expected them to be. And they throttled the Grizz en route to a somewhat surprising road victory. Like you talk about confounding, this team has been the definition of it. Again, not not the win-loss record or the overall uh, results, but the way they've gone about getting those results, the exact inverse of what we expected. Um, it almost makes no sense. And I am very curious to see how sustainable it is on either side of the ball. Because offensively, I don't think what they're doing is sustainable given the way things have gone. However, I also think Siakam will continue to find his legs. I think if Siakam and OG Ananobi are both healthy for a con- like considerable period of time, the offense should just be better for ha- like by having more options. You know, the other thing I, m- I didn't mention either when we're talking about the offense, like, okay, like Scotty Barnes has been a revelation and he has been way more polished offensively than anyone expected him to be. But if you actually look at the numbers, like he hasn't been efficient yet. He still struggles at times to score efficiently. There's not a lot going, like when you look at the numbers, it's not like there's a ton going right that you could point to and say, oh, well, like this unsustainable thing is happening other than the Gary Trent stuff. This unsustainable thing is happening. That's why they're, you know, outperforming their talent base offensively. And yet here they are. So Maybe the offense stuff actually balances out and they just stay around this all season. But on the defensive side, like, I don't know. Does the scheme have to change? Do the players just have to execute it better? Maybe it's a little column A, a little column B. I feel like something has to give on that end. And maybe when it does, something gives on the other end. I don't know. But yeah, you talk about confounding. Like, well, this team is this team is what it should be and isn't what it should be at the same time. I think it's more is what it should be. It's like the thing that's confounding to me is just like the extent to which they're pulling it off. And like, I guess pulling it off is relative because you mentioned like the defensive problems, but they are doing what they have set out to do in a lot of ways. So like you, 
you're asking like what's working at the offensive end. Cause you're even like the Gary Trent shot making that you're mentioning. It's like, yeah, he's quote unquote shooting the piss out of the ball to the tune of like league average true shooting. Right. Because right. he's taking, you know, a steady diet of some of the most difficult step backs like that, that anybody in the league is taking. And like, he's hitting a surprising number of them, but he's also barely getting to the free throw line. Like a lot of them are long twos. And at the end of the day, that's not leading to hyper-efficient scoring. It's bailing the Raptors out of a lot of stagnant half court possessions, but yeah, they don't have anybody who's giving them like efficient half court offense right now. Although Pascal, I think has looked pretty good in that regard since coming back. But to that point, I mean, you mentioned like we expected half court offense to be a concern coming into the season. Well, guess what? They're 21st in half-court offense, so that has been a problem. It's been mitigated by the fact that they, like you said, lead the league in transition frequency, and that is particularly impressive when you consider the fact that they are 29th in opponent field goal percentage. And so, like, they're pulling the ball out of the basket a ton and still managing to get out in transition more than any other team in the league. Like, that's pretty incredible. To me, the defensive shortcomings are directly connected to them playing above their heads on offense because the way that they're playing defense is specifically designed, I think, to fuel their offense, right? Like, big part of the reason that they're playing this hyper-aggressive style Mm -hmm. is because they want to force turnovers and they want to use those turnovers to fuel transition. And we're seeing the drawbacks of that. Like, if you want to help that aggressively from the strong side you're going to give up a lot of corner threes. Like if you want to play with like no traditional rim protectors on the floor, that's going to require you to send a whole bunch of extra bodies toward the middle to serve as supplemental, you know, layers of rim protection. And that's going to expose you on the perimeter. Like there are all these things that they're doing because they kind of need to, in a way, if they want to be able to tread water at the other end of the floor And that comes with downsides. So like giving up a a really high percentage of a really high field goal percentage at the rim is one of them giving up uh, a ton of corner threes. Like two years ago, they actually set the record in terms of opponent uh, corner three frequency and they're challenging their own record right now. They're like a a fraction of a percentage point behind them. The difference was a couple of years ago. They had this, I mean, call it luck, but uh, I believe it was two years ago. The year it was the post Kawhi year when they, you know, won the equivalent of sixty games, prorated to eighty-two. Yeah, they gave up this record-setting frequency of corner threes, but I believe they also had the best three-point defense that year. And you know, many statisticians will tell you, and like basketball observers will tell you that not that defense plays no part in three-point accuracy, but opponent three-point percentage is very luck-dependent, mm-hmm. and so. It is fair to wonder how much of that season defensively, at least from like the three-point perspective, was just they got lucky. Like they they played this style that can burn you if you get unlucky, and they got lucky. And in the you know the last couple of years, it's been a little more in line with what you would expect when giving up the, the frequency of easier three-pointers that they give up. Yeah, and I mean to to kind of answer your question about you know, does the scheme need to change or do they just need to execute it better? I mean, I don't think the scheme is going to change. I, I just think this is the way that Nick Nurse wants to play. You know, I think that's probably a decision that was made in conjunction with the front office based on the type of personnel moves that they've made and the type of players that they've stocked this roster with. 
this is the way they want to play. And I think their goal is to get the team up to speed, get them playing this style with a little bit more connectivity rather than adapting. So it's like, yes, uh, in my mind, the scheme does need to change, but it's not going to. So the execution of it needs to be better. And to your point, you know, you're saying like, well, Nick Nurse isn't asking this slow lumbering team to play this hyperactive style. Like this is a team that physically is well suited to playing this way, but they're also very young and very inexperienced. Yeah. So in terms of their feel, it, it's not like it, it, that's what we've seen. Like they, they're yeah. not really suited to playing this way because they, it's, you know, it's a lot of guys who don't have a ton of reps and haven't played together. Like, it's, so if it's, if they are going to get there, it's going to take time. But like, Scott, like Scotty Barnes, man, I hate to say it because he has been such a revelation at the offensive end, but he's been a minus defender this season. And I think him trying to play in the gaps, like his proclivity for roving, for ball watching has really come back to to bite him and the Raptors. Like that's triggered a lot of breakdowns for them. And I also think it's like, you look at the, the two guys who I would probably consider to be the best defenders on the roster in Fred and OG. This scheme isn't really catering to their defensive strengths. Like it, it isn't in the sense that like they ask Fred to dig a lot and to tag a lot, which he is excellent at. But he is also like really excellent just as like a screen navigator and chaser. But like they're not playing a ton of drop coverage. So we don't get to see him do that a lot. And then with OG, it's like obviously he excels defending in isolation, but they don't really let him do that either. So OG's taking some gambles as well that have burned them this year. And that, I mean, yeah, that's obviously that's a personal thing, but it also is a scheme thing because this is what the Raptors are asking their guys to do. So well, anyway, last like. I was going to say, my last note on the Raptors, because we were talking about the things that they're doing that maybe are burning them defensively, but part of the reason they're doing it is because it it's to fuel what they do offensively, and they need like anything to fuel that side of the court, given the challenges they face on it. The one thing that they're not being burned on is the way they're crashing the offensive glass. And usually, well, not usually, but the, the like a previous generation of coaches... The fear with crashing the glass, the way the Raptors do, is you leave yourself vulnerable, transition going the other way. Your defense is compromised. Their floor isn't balanced. The one, you know, you talk about the gambles they make on the defensive end. The, the gamble Nurse and his coaching staff have made with this roster and with the athleticism that I was talking about is that they believe they are capable of crashing the offensive glass, making up for their lack of size in a lot of ways on the glass by just sending like a, a guard or both their guards to the to the glass with their bigs and having faith that they are fast enough, athletic enough, whatever enough defensively to get back and still survive on that end. And to that point, the Raptors are the number one offensive rebounding team in the league, rebounding nearly 34% of their misses. Uh, almost three percentage points higher than any other team. And while opponents uh, in terms of transition efficiency are like top five against the Raptors, if you look at transition frequency, they're like bottom eight or something. So the Raptors are actually doing an almost, if someone had given me these numbers, I would have said that's unsustainable. But then you look at it and it's like, well, maybe this roster can pull it off. They're doing this like almost unbelievable thing where they are crashing the offensive glass 
They're succeeding in doing that. It's helping prop up an offense that you'd come into the season saying needed help and needed the ways to manufacture points. And yet they're doing that without it really burning them on the other end. Like that hasn't been their issue defensively. So I, I think that's almost another part of this. We talk about like confounding and this team getting to the results that we expected, but doing it in ways we didn't expect. And that's just like another wrinkle in it. Well, again, I mean, it's not even like that it's in ways we didn't expect because we did expect them to get out and transition a lot, right? And we did that. We, we, I mean, I actually, I think, said before the season that I expected them to scale back the aggressiveness on defense because of the inexperience of the roster. And it's been like the exact opposite. If anything, they've been like more aggressive yeah. than ever. But I don't think they're doing anything that's like totally unexpected. It's just the way that it's sort of playing out right now that I feel like has been surprising, like the extremes to which it's gone. And... I mean, I wrote about all this, like, uh, if, if you're interested in this, like, you can Great go and, piece, and, by the way. and read, thank you. Yeah, you can go and read the piece I wrote. But basically what it boils down to is, so I mentioned the effective field goal percentage thing, where they're 24th, and yet they're giving up the second worst, uh, you know, opponent effective field goal percentage in the league, and somehow they're still outscoring opponents. The reason they're doing that is because they're getting eight more shooting possessions per game than their opponents are. And so all those factors are things we've talked about. Like they're they're killing it on the offensive glass. They're forcing a ton of turnovers. And also they're quite a low turnover team themselves. So that's just, those factors are all combined to them dominating the possession battle. And that is how they're overcoming that big deficit in terms of shot making. But I also think we're seeing that that has downsides. And so like just dominating the possession battle isn't enough if it's opening up uh, other things for your opponents. And one of the things we didn't mention is like the, the foul rate, which was a problem for them last year too, for basically all the same reasons. Like you play this hyper aggressive style, you play without a ton of size up front. I think that's inevitably going to lead to a lot of hacks. Uh, and this is the second year in a row where they've been bottom three in opponent free throw attempt rates. So that's part you of know, the problem too. But you know what I think will help their defense? What's that? I think Chris, ba- Chris Boucher is going to be out of the rotation. With, with Utah back, and, and yes. holy hell, he looked good in that Memphis yeah. game, eh? Well, look, when, when Ken Burch is healthy, given the way I think they want to, and rightfully so, uh, like want to see what they have in Precious Achua and want to give them the minutes to develop. And then with the ability of Utah Watanabe, who's now back, to be a small ball five when needed, OG Ananobi, we know, can fill that role admirably. Even Scotty Barnes struggles aside, I think has, has the strength to be a small ball five. Pascal Siakam can be a small ball five in line. It's like you start putting it all together and then you add in the fact that Chris Boucher has been downright awful for all of like all but two games this year. And it's like, where, where are the minutes for him and, and where are the deserved minutes for him? And I think when he is cut out of the rotation, I do think the defense gets a little bit better because that is addition by subtraction, especially when you're replacing him with a much sounder, smarter defender in Watanabe. Yeah, and I will say, like, the second half of that game against the Grizzlies, I've been very critical of the Raptors' scheme all year, but I think that half was a perfect illustration of what it can be because they were a lot more connected and on a string with their rotations. And I I think we saw, like... Memphis got worn down by just like the constant digs, like the nail help. And by the end of the game, like they just look so frustrated and out of sorts. And it's like, that is what the Raptors are aiming for. That's what they're trying to do. And if they have that sort of communication and connectivity 
where they're able to take those swipes and those gambles without really getting burned for it, then yeah, that's going to be a hellacious defense to play against. But we just haven't seen that very often this season. Why don't we just use that, I guess, as a pivot point to talk about the Grizzlies because they have been one of the most confounding teams to me in the sense that you really just don't know what you're getting from night to night with them. And now they're about where, where I expected them to be, but it's not... There's not any consistency there. It's like they're, they'll lose to the Pelicans. Then they shellack the Clippers. Then they get 40 pieced by the Timberwolves. Then they go into Utah and beat the Jazz in dramatic fashion. And then they come back home and build a huge halftime lead against the Raptors and get outscored by 25 in the second half. Like, you know what that sounds like to me? Confounding? <laughs> a confounding 500-ish team. Yeah, I suppose. Yeah. Um, but, well, I think, you know, to, to get maybe more specific with it, like the through line with all these struggles is that they're 30th in the league in defense after being sixth last year. And like the biggest issue has been at the point of attack, which is, again, like the complete opposite of what was the case last year. Like their point of attack defense was maybe their biggest strength. And suddenly it's like they're just offering very little resistance, like getting blown by or like conceding the middle of the floor and just not really applying a ton of pressure. Like there's just a sort of softness about them at the point of attack. That's really surprising to me for a team. Like I know Dylan Brooks missed most of the season and he's just come back and he's actually helped defense. Yes. I was going to say when Dylan Brooks is on the court, their point of attack defense looks a lot better, but when I Dylan think Brooks you know, is on the court. There's also some uh, <laughs> question marks on the offensive end. You got to take the good with the bad with Dylan, man. It's yeah. always the full Dylan experience, and you just got to ride the roller coaster. But he, he has helped, but uh, it's still it's still an issue. And I think maybe like Jaw to me and Desmond Bain have been the biggest offenders, where it's just difficulty navigating screens not playing with nearly enough force, not really making great reads, I don't think, when it comes to getting around those screens. And, I mean, I do think part of this is luck-based as well, where uh, they're getting absolutely torched from three-point range. Their opponents are shooting 49.6% from the corners. So that's obviously going to normalize, and that might make the whole defensive apparatus look a lot better. But... I just, I don't know. Like, the, I, I think they are allowing too much penetration. And Steven Adams just isn't the type of rim protector who can clean that stuff up. So even if and when, like, the three-point defense stabilizes, like, I, I don't I don't know that that's going to solve all their issues. Like, they, they still need to figure out, you know, not just containing pre- penetration, but also, like, rebounding. Defensive rebounding has been a big issue for them. And... That's surprising for a team that plays big a lot of the time with, you know, two seven footers on the floor and Steven Adams and Jaron Jackson, but Jaron Jackson still is not a good rebounder. And it's also like, you know, they're playing Adams a little bit higher up in pick and roll and he's contesting shots, you know, further away from the rim. than I think Valanciunas was last season. And so that makes it really incumbent on the guards and wings to crash and to rebound. And they just haven't been good at that. And, and that falls on Jaron Jackson as well, who's been good for the most part. Like, I think he's having a good season. Steven um, Adams has always been a good team rebounder as opposed to an individual, right? Like, he's going to box out and do his job. Yeah. And then you need, you know, whether it was a Russell Westbrook in OKC or whatever, like, you then need your guards or wings to do their job and go get the ball. 
Yeah, and like those are connected issues, right? When we're talking about like allowing dribble penetration and what that forces Adams to do, where he has to come out and contest, that's then opening up their own glass. And so it's like, okay, if you're like, the, you know, they, they are mostly playing drop, like they're chasing over top. So it's kind of like they're giving up the middle of the floor almost as part of their scheme. But then like, if you're going to do that in such a way that Adams has to commit, like you got to be bumping down and boxing guys out. Like, and like, I just don't think their guards and wings have done a good job of that so far. So nothing has gone particularly well for them at the defensive end, despite them having a lot of really good defensive personnel. And I, I Jared, do think it'll be better from here on out with Brooks back, but like it's, it's been a mess so far. Yeah. Jaron Jackson himself has been confounding. Um, He's been inefficient offensively. He's been disappointing defensively. He's still not a good rebound. Like, there's a lot of negatives there. I still have a lot of faith in him. I think we both uh, thought of him as a – not that we put him in our episode. Now I can't remember if we had him as a breakout player this year or I as think a swing player. A swing player, yeah. yeah. Um, like, we both have faith in him. Uh, we might have more faith in him than Taylor Jenkins because, as you saw actually in their last game when they lost to Toronto when they blew that double-digit halftime lead – Taylor Jenkins is fouling Jaron Jackson out of games more than like yeah. Jaron Jackson is get okay getting into quote unquote foul trouble, but then he finished Taylor Jenkins four fouls. Yeah, like that's what I'm saying. Taylor Jenkins ends up limiting his minutes because of that. But it's like you get six fouls. I mean, we've like we're of the same mindset here. A lot of other people are too. Like we've gone on these rants before, but like you get six fouls, okay. You being in quote unquote foul trouble does not make you more likely to then get another foul than you would have been before, say that fourth foul, that fifth, whatever. Yeah. If this guy is one of your best and most important players, and you are now not playing him as much as you would have because he's got four foul, like how does that help you in the bigger picture of that game? It doesn't. It's like you are fouling your player out, not the referees. And Jenkins does this consistently, and it especially is evident with Jaron Jackson because he will maybe pick up a, an extra early foul or whatever the case may be. And look, Jaron Jackson, I'm not saying he's been great or like is deserving of more minutes because he's been awesome. But he's deserving of more minutes because the Grizzlies, for as much as they've maybe overachieved the last couple of years, are still very much a young team in development. You know, whether they're on the rise or taking a step back this year due to the trades, like whatever, they're very much still in development. And playing Jaron Jackson like less than 27 minutes per game and you fouling him out as, as it's good, like that's not doing him, you, or this young team any favors going forward. And so I think Jenkins has done a good job in Memphis, but I definitely think like there are these little things like this. And then if the team starts underperforming and you start getting, you start getting in the weeds a little bit and, and, people will start coming for your head as a head coach. Like, that's just the way the world of professional sports works. And Jenkins isn't doing himself any favors with the way he's handling Jaron Jackson's minutes. I'll say that. I also have a theory about uh, the future of the Grizzlies coaching staff, but I'm going to save that for maybe another week or two. Okay, I look forward to that. Um but yeah, I mean, to the Jackson point, I think it was particularly frustrating because the Raptors really didn't have a good answer for him. And something he showed in that game that I think he's really started to show a lot more of this season is just sort of a refined craft in the post. And I do think, I mean, I think he's been good. Like you mentioned, like he's been kind of disappointing defensively. I don't really feel that way. I actually think apart from the rebounding, he's been pretty good. And I mean, if you look at like how the Grizzlies have performed with him on and off the floor, I mean, they have been a disaster with him on the bench. So 
yeah, let him get to six fouls, you know, don't foul him out with four. Uh, I a hundred percent agree with that, but uh, unless you have anything else on the Grizz, uh, we can move on to your next most confounding team. My next most confounding team. And they're, they're not all that interesting of a team this year is the Spurs. What What's confounding about them to you? So what's confounding about them to me is that they're, their record is where I thought they'd be. I think they have a bottom five record now. They're 4-13. and 13. They're much more competitive on a game-to-game basis than I thought they would be coming into the year. But what's confounding to me is I don't, like, I watch them and I don't know, like, I don't know where they're going as a team. And so DeJounte Murray, he's been inefficient, but otherwise he's been great. Like, he's he's been by far their best player, putting up uh, big numbers, playing well. He's, like, averaging 18, 8, and 8 with a couple steals, I think. I, other than the efficiency, you can't really ask for much more from him. And like I said, the Spurs are actually like competing almost on a nightly basis. Good teams, bad teams, like doesn't matter. Their point differential, um, they might have had a bad loss recently that brought it up a bit. So it's now about like minus two per 100. But for a while, up until like last week, they had a bottom five record with an almost uh, neutral point differential. Like it was, it was a very weird start to the year for them. But... I, I just like watch the way they play and I watch the guys that are supposed to be, I guess, part of the future. Like Devin Vassell can shoot. Keldon Johnson, like I think, you know, is a promising young player. Murray's been great, but like Derek White's been really disappointing. Yeah. Uh, Lonnie Walker uh, has kind of gotten like lost in the shuffle. You know, Pirtle, like solid center, but probably not really part, given now how far this team is away from something, like probably not part of the future their next good Spurs team. Murray, who's having, like I said, this like pretty good year and I've loved what I've seen from him. He's already like 25, which I know is very young, but I don't know. I just like to start watching this team and I'm like, I don't know where they're going. And they're going to finish with a terrible record despite competing on a nightly basis. And maybe if you're a Spurs fan, you're looking at it saying like, you know what? This is all we could have asked for. They compete, but they lose. We need young talent. We need draft capital. This is the way to go. I just... Yeah, I guess what's confounding for me isn't isn't like where they reside in the league this year or anything like that. It's more so where they're going. Like, should DeJounte Murray be like a trade ship right now? Like, I don't know if he keeps playing well because he's probably not going to be on the same timeline as the young talent they bring in. I, I don't know. I, I mean, if they if they're thinking about trading Murray, that's like... I mean, they're just really tearing it down to the studs at that point because... And, and the other interesting thing... Uh, sorry to interrupt, is that their their attendance is also sort of like starting to crash. You know, like the Mighty yeah, Spurs who were... Isn't isn't that like just a league-wide thing that's happening right now? For for like obvious reasons? The Spurs in San... Like San Antonio getting, having nights so there's like 13 or 14,000 in the... Like that's the kind of stuff that kind of like pops off the page. And you're like, well, okay. Um, yeah, I mean, I make... They're, they're as bad as they've been in 28 yeah. years, yeah, or however long it's been. Like... Um, yeah there, there's just a lot there where it's like the confounding thing is you know record wise you could have looked at it and say yeah like the record wise they're playing down to their talent level but then if you actually watch the games the way they compete that they're playing above their heads and still losing that's confusing in its own way but for me i'm more confounded by like where they're going i guess as a franchise i knew they were far away but i'm just starting to wonder like is there anything here that is even like part of the next wave of the Spurs. I guess Vassell and Johnson, but I don't I don't well, know. Why man. not Murray? I mean he's young. I think he's 
25. Like he's 25. on a really, really good contract. I don't, I don't think they're in a position where they should be thinking about trading him. Like, is he their foundational superstar to build around? Probably not, but could he be a really important piece of like the next good Spurs team? Absolutely. I think, you know, they clearly need more shooting. There just isn't a lot of room for their half court offense to breathe. But I think, you know, to your point about, well, I didn't expect them to be this competitive, even though they had this terrible record. Well, they're competitive because their defense is really good. And I think that, I mean, I think so. Like, I haven't looked at where it ranks. I'm just basing this sort of anecdotally on watching yeah. them play. But like, No, eyeball test for sure. They look structurally sound on that end. Um, okay, well, why don't you look it up while I, while I try to make this point? Because I don't know actually where they rank. Maybe they haven't been good defensively. But definitely 20th. the game. 20th. Yeah. So, okay. But again, this actually goes to my point of how confounding they've been. And I get it, like not not a lot of people are watching them. They're it's kind of a, like a lost season for them. But this is to my point. Like it, the defense looks structurally sound. They're playing their assets like, and they are staying in games. But they're well, still losing. Yeah, which I guess comes down to talent, like a lot of times. Mm-hmm. But even yeah, like the defense is a perfect example. Like I think they're doing a lot of the right things on D, and yet here they stand with a bottom eleven. Yeah, that's interesting. I mean, I do think so. Like some of the guys. I guess the young players who are ostensibly part of their core are not good defenders. Like Keldon Johnson, I feel like is a perfect example because here's this guy who is like super well-built, sturdy, strong as an ox. And you look at that and you're like, well, that guy should be a good defender, especially because of how explosive he is moving north-south. But then you watch him try and move east-west and it's like, oh, okay. Like he doesn't move well laterally, which is I think what's really holding him back defensively. Like, he can't track shifty guards. Like that game they played against the Suns, Landry Shaman was blowing by him easily. And then like, you know, you kind of couple that with his not great help defense. And I would say he's a pretty clear minus on that side of the ball. Lonnie Walker, same thing, not great help instincts. So I think, I guess like having guys like that in the rotation can compromise what could be a, a strong defensive foundation with Pirtle in the middle. And I think Pirtle is great. Like one of the more underappreciated rim protectors in the league. Murray at the point of attack is about as good as it gets. And I think Vassell, he gives you both. Like, he's great on the ball. He's a great helper. And he might be, not that he's going to be, like, the superstar, I guess, that's going to, like, take the Spurs back to, like, their glory days, but he might be the prospect, you know, or the young player on the team that gives me the most optimism like Murray for now is like I think clearly the best player and that could remain the case for like the next couple of years but I think Vassell with the progression of his jump shot he's doing a little bit more stuff off of the dribble obviously that's a long way away but like the fact that he can shoot it and defend the way that he can uh, and is showing some signs of like developing some off the dribble craft I think that's really exciting I think like they really have something in him I don't know, man. It's like, you know, what is any team doing where they they have like a bunch of pretty good young talent, but not one standout star and like the parts are maybe a bit mismatched. You know what I mean? I think they're just they're figuring it out as they go along. I don't know that they necessarily like have a five year plan here or like a blueprint. Yeah. It's like, here's how we're getting back to where we were. I think it's like, this is what we have. We're going to sort of take it day by day or year by year, see how these guys develop. and figure out what we need to do to get where we're trying to go. Like maybe that becomes, you know, a consolidation trade where they're packaging a couple of their young guys to get a more established type of player. 
maybe it is something where it's like a full scale teardown. Trade Murray, trade Pirtle, like trade anyone who, you know, resembling an established vet. I think Thad Young will get moved this season like that. Oh, yeah. That was actually part of my confounding uh, rant that I forgot. It was in my notes of what is Thad Young doing here? Like, <laughs> No, he'll he'll be traded. Like, that'll be part of it. But it's like, yeah, I guess that's one avenue they could go where they just trade everybody and rebuild literally like, you know, from the ground up scorched earth. And probably, I mean, I would think that means Popovich is retiring because I don't know if he's sticking so, around for that that level of So rebuild, here, here's but. my question for you then, like watching this team and stuff. Does the way they're competing on a night-to-night basis, which, again, I actually think is pleasantly surprising, does that make like convince you more that they're actually closer to being good or relevant again and that they should maybe be, I don't want to say like one move away from contending. We know they're not that. But does the way they're competing convince you that they're actually closer to something positive a lot quicker than we thought? Or does all the other stuff I mentioned, the kind of like directionless stuff, or when you look at like the overall talent base here, does that, are, are you closer to leaning that way where it's like, no, no, they're they're closer to actually tearing it down further and needing that route. Like if you, I know you don't like that if you had to pick things yeah. because there isn't actually a gun to your head, mm-hmm. but based on what you've seen from this team, like which direction are you leaning more? Because I go back and forth. That's why I had them in my confounding teams because I yeah. really have gone back and forth in it this season. Uh, no, it's a former for me. Like, I think th- these are generally, apart from Derek White, who I agree has been super disappointing, although I, I think his defense has been mm-hmm. up to par. Like, he, he's been great defensively. I just think offensively, I don't know what he is at this point. And that's really disappointing because a couple of years ago, he looked like he was breaking out. You know, as a ball in hand player, a guy who was really efficient running the pick and roll, was shooting it well, it was like, oh, he's putting it together. And all that's sort of fallen by the wayside. And I just don't, I don't know what he is. He's been, he's been very disappointing offensively. So that's, apart from that, like, I, and like you mentioned, Lonnie Walker, although I was never particularly high on him. So I don't know that that registers as a big disappointment. I just think for the most part, like, there's a lot of encouraging signs when it comes to, the development track that these guys are on. And I am just not of the mind that like the only way to properly rebuild is to just like do full teardown. Like there, Agreed. there definitely Agreed. is a way to 100%. kind of rebuild from the middle. And I think the Spurs are in an interesting position where it's like they're rebuilding from the middle in the sense that like they have this sort of established talent on the roster, but they're still going to wind up with a really high pick in the coming draft. And you know, I don't know, what is Josh Primo? Like the last couple drafts, they've been 11 and 12. I think they got Vassell at 11, Primo at 12. But I think this coming draft, they're going to be talking about, you know, in in the realm of like a top five pick. And that- Paolo Boncaro, baby. You know, there you go. Something like that, where it's like, oh, suddenly like you have this potential franchise player coming in. And it, it might take a while to get there, but I don't think you say- oh, DeJounte Murray is 25, he's not on the right timeline, so you trade him. I think you look at that as an opportunity to be like, we have a potentially great supporting cast for a star player here. Let's build that star player and let's make this thing work. I I feel like that is more the direction I see them going rather than scorched earth. But I do actually think they have a good supporting cast for a star player. I just don't think a player drafted uh, in 2022 is going to be a star player in 2022 or 23. Like you said, it's going to take some time. It, de- I mean, yeah, it depends on the player, but yeah. 
yeah. Anyway, a consolidation trade, you know, that that could be a route mm-hmm. that they look to go to. But like I said, they they just need more shooting, man. Like more yeah. than anything. Like you mentioned that, and what is he doing here? Like they run so many possessions where they're like trying to in, like have him initiate from the high post and like have all these guys running around cutting off of him. But like the defense is ignoring him because they know he's not a threat to like put the ball on the floor or shoot. And they don't have the movement shooters to like take advantage of that anti-gravity in the way that like the Warriors do with Draymond. So he's just sitting there like surveying his options like a quarterback who's like he's trying to find a receiver open. But there's four receivers and like five defensive backs. They'll kill like 10 seconds of clock trying to do that. So anyway, all right, let's move on. (laughs) Next, next most confounding team. The Indiana Pacers. Oh, for the love of God. No, I'm kidding. All right. No, let's, come let's on, man. Like, I, look. You announced your Pacers fandom, I know. Let's just get on with it. Let's I, and thank it. God I did because holy yeah. hell, this team is a yeah. mess. Like, I, I think... No they, team playing below their talent level more than the Pacers. Yeah, and I think, you know, even... Like they've underperformed their point differential to I, I yeah. think the greatest margin of any team in the yeah. league. I think... Do they have a positive point differential while being four games under 500? They do, yeah. Yeah. Um. So yeah, that's... I mean, that's part of it. Like... And I get that health has been a big struggle for them, but I feel like they've been healthy enough lately where pretty much everyone's back and playing regularly except TJ Warren, that they should have figured themselves out at least a little bit and established some kind of baseline with the talent that they have on hand. But it's just been all over the place, both in terms of their just basic execution, also in terms of the schematic stuff that they're doing. And like, I don't know, it's just, it's it's very Jekyll and Hyde. Like they kind of like the Grizzlies, I guess, where they've looked really good at points. Um, You know, they had a great win over the Jazz on the second night of a back-to-back. They crushed the Bulls earlier this week. But it just, it hasn't amounted to a feeling of coherence on the whole. And I don't know what the vision for this team is. So uh, I don't know if you've gotten a chance to watch much Pacers like, they played a game against the Hornets last week that I, that I really want to talk about, but uh, I'll, I'll give you the floor to talk about what you've seen from Indiana. Yeah. I just think they've been super disappointing. I think I'm like, it's, it's really weird to see a team coached by Rick Carlisle underperforming their talent base. Cause usually we're used to his teams overperforming or him getting something out of teams that you didn't think was there. And this to me has been the opposite. Uh, it, it's been strange. And at some point, man, you just have to like, like, wonder that this group doesn't work for whatever reason this group is not getting the what should be the sum of its parts and like what what's next for them they're what 13th in the east right now i know it's early but well it's not even that early anymore We're like a quarter of the way into the season they're 13th in the east now the east is jumbled like they're not they haven't really dug themselves much of a hole given the way the East standings are and the fact top 10 now have a chance to make the playoffs. But like, I don't know when you have the talent, the Pacers have like your aim should be higher than that. But then we also come back to the same old argument that they don't really have that like overarching talent that can really take a roster over the top. Then we get into the depressing conversation of what are they really doing? And I don't want to have that conversation because I know not every team can be competing for a title at all times, but just a lot of not great basketball being played. In Indiana, and again, it's like, what's what's next for this team? What's yeah, next? Well, I, look, I'm not even thinking about it in that sense. Like, I, to your point, 
you know, yeah, not every team can be mm-hmm. competing for the title every season. I think what you just want to see is like, okay, I know what my team is. I know what to expect from this team, like what their identity is, what they're doing makes sense. And that's where I feel like the Pacers have really fallen short this season, where I feel like a lot of the things they've done just haven't made a ton of sense. Like, you know, Sabonis, his touches are way down. They're sticking him in the corner a lot. He's getting, you know, way fewer elbow touches, fewer post-ups, and he's shooting more threes. 23% of his shots have been threes, which is the highest since his misbegotten rookie season, you know, in which the Thunder just completely misunderstood the type of player he was. Uh, And he's taking all those threes despite shooting only 29% on them, and defense is not respecting him as a jump shooter at all. So he's just kind of being, like, de-emphasized in the offense in general, and I'm not entirely sure why. Like... Brogdon's been great as a, you know, sort of dual scoring and playmaking threat. Uh, But outside of him, it's like, you know, Miles Turner's adding some wrinkles to his offensive game. Chris Duarte has proven capable of creating his own shot at a reasonably high level. Um, But I think Levert's been super disappointing. And and I don't think these guys should be shoving Sabonis to the margins. Like their offense still functions best when he's at the center of it. So I don't really understand what they're doing with him. And he's still been good. For sure he has been. Like, I think he's making it work with with kind of like what they're asking of him. Yeah. But, yeah, I just I just don't get that. And then, so okay, so I'll take it back to this game they played against the Hornets because this is where I feel like all this stuff really collided for like a, you know, 15-minute stretch basically in the middle of the game. Basically, I was, I didn't end up watching this whole game. I was just, uh, I can't remember what night of the week it was last week, but I had two screens going. And on my second screen, I was sort of just like court surfing basically. And... Noticed at one point that the the Hornets and Pacers were like tied at 37 and was sort of bookmarking that and being like, I'll go check that out later. I looked like five minutes later and the, the Hornets were up by 20 points. So I was like, I need to figure out what has just happened here. And then I wound up going back, back to the point where it was 37 all and I watched the rest of the game from there. And obviously like a situation like that where you specifically hone in on like a disastrous run for a team is going to reflect very poorly on them. And you never want to judge a team on its best day or its worst day. But it was like, we're talking about confounding. This was maybe the most confounding game that I've seen any team play this season. Like I was just tracking all of the different head scratching things that happened. There was a play when, you know, Sabonis is trying to post up and he's got a pretty good seal. Brogdon instead runs a pick and roll with Miles Turner and Turner, instead of popping, literally rolls right into Sabonis's post up. So Brogdon then just like has to try and create something out of nothing. He gets blocked by Gordon Hayward. Hornets get a transition bucket the other way. The Hornets are running LaMelo ball, Gordon Hayward pick and rolls, and the Pacers are defending it with Brogdon and Justin Holiday, which is like ideal personnel to switch with. And instead, they blitz it. So Hayward short rolls. No one tags. He hits a layup. Next time down, they do the same thing. Hayward short rolls. This time, the weak side is in, so he kicks to the corner for a three. Uh, like, they, they were blitzing LaMelo all game, and nothing good came of it. I don't know. There was just, like, not a lot of intentionality behind it. There was another possession where they posted up Miles Turner, who's not a good post player, while having Sabonis, quote-unquote, spacing out in the corner. And so... Uh, Mason Plumley, who was ostensibly guarding Sabonis, just came way over and blocked Turner at the rim. It's like, what did you think was going to happen? Uh, anyway, so it got like so disastrous that, that Rick Carlisle basically benched his starters for the last eight minutes of the third quarter and the entirety of the fourth. And then the bench actually 
managed to make things somewhat interesting at the end of the game, kind of because the Hornets took their foot off the gas. But like, even they like they made it a close game in the end, and Carlisle never thought to return to his starters for a second. Yeah, I'll say this: watching the Pacers this year and how disappointed I've been with them, I can understand why Nate Bjorkgren was mean to them. <laughs> so your team, your team Nate, eh? Um, I, I just understand why he might have been mean to them. Yeah, well, I don't know, man. It's like that's the thing where it's tough sometimes to to suss out. It's like, okay, how much of this is on the players and how much of it is on the coaching staff? And I really feel like it's been a mix of both this season, which is certainly not where you want to be. No. Um, but like, man, I, I really expected a lot more out of Levert. Yeah, like he's shooting it poorly, which is like fine. Okay, a lot of guys are shooting the ball poorly, but. I'm focusing more on like some of the other offensive process stuff where I've thought in the past that he's a pretty good passer, but like the passing reads from him have not been there this season. He looks off the roll man so often. And I feel like maybe that would be forgivable if he was scoring effectively out of the pick and roll, but he's not. Uh, And he's been pretty bad defensively too. So uh, he's dealt with a lot of health stuff. Obviously I understand that. And I, I hope he, you know, is feeling physically okay. And like, I hope that, he improves as the season goes along, but like so far it's been rough for him. Yeah. Um, all right. Who you got next? All right. My last one is the Knicks. And hmm. what I find confounding about them is that they have by far the worst starting lineup in the NBA and by <laughs> yeah. far the best bench in the NBA. So I've tweeted about this, but if you, if you look at like the big uh, minute lineups, you know, five man units that have played together in the NBA this year, if you look at just the top 30, which is like an average of one per team, although the Knicks have two lineups in there, their starting lineup of Kemba Walker, Evan Fournier, RJ Barrett, uh, Julius Randle, Mitchell Robinson, literally the worst performing lineup. They are minus 15.5 per 100 possessions. Take those same 30 most used lineups in the league, the best performing one, the all bench lineup of Derek Rose, Taj Gibson, Alec Burks, Obi Toppin, Emmanuel Quickly, Plus 28 per 100 possessions. The Knicks right now are nine and seven, nine and eight. They are, they're doing fine. They've won some good games. They've, they've lost some really exciting games against good teams. But when you like dig into the numbers and you think about, you know, okay, is this team actually on like an ascended pace? Are they actually going to get over like the hump they couldn't last year and, and compete to win a playoff round? And my answer would be, unquestionably no because they're starting like their supposed best lineup or the players that are supposed to be their best players and their game changers are completely shitting the bed like beyond measure and that's not a good indicator of future success especially when you get later in the season and games are more decided by the best players and starters so now, like, there's other ways you can look at this. You can look at maybe it's like they just haven't found the right combinations, right? Like, Kemba Walker and Evan Fournier replacing uh, Alfred Payton and Reggie Bullock are supposed to elevate this team's talent and their upside and obviously their offensive potential. But, like, Tom Thibodeau clearly not enamored with these guys and their play hasn't done much to enamor him. Kemba Walker and Evan Fournier, but Kemba more especially... They're not playing in the fourth quarter. I don't know how many games in a row it's been now where Kemba has not touched the court in the fourth quarter, and it's been well-deserved. So, like, I don't know. Maybe the silver lining is you can actually find a combination that works. I don't know. Do you 
Do you put like quickly and Toppin in with Barrett, Randall, and Robinson in some like quirky lineup and mm-hmm. find something that works? Does Rose come like there? There might be lineups that they can find that work that allow them to kind of recapture some of that magic they had last season and compete to win a playoff round again. But I right now the the way they are playing, the way they are defending, which is much more in line with our expectations for the way they were going to defend last year as opposed to the results and the lack of a grasp Thibodeau seems to have on finding a heavy minute lineup that works outside of an all bench lineup is very, very concerning. It should be concerning for Knicks fans. Yeah. Why don't they just make the whole team out of the bench lineup? <laughs> like, uh, yeah, well, I, I believe that's what the Knicks uh, actually were doing for about 15 years. there, um, constructing teams out of bench players. <laughs> that's good stuff. And, and if there's anything Tom Thibodeau loves to do is to make his entire team out of one lineup. But yeah. I, I think th- there's another case of a team where it's like what they're sort of like overlying numbers, like their record, their point differential, their offensive and defensive rating. All that stuff is like pretty much in line with what I expected. It's just happening in a way that I didn't necessarily expect, where obviously I wasn't expecting their starters to be like the worst high usage lineup in the entire league. But as far as like, yeah, we fully saw this coming, like the, the defensive downturn, right? Like, I will say like, you know, the, the one constant, like the carryover from last year is that they're still the number one rim protecting team in the league in terms of uh, opponent field goal percentage, but they're still allowing a lot of shots at the rim. And like the opponent shot spectrum in general is like not particularly optimal. Like they're, they're kind of just like giving up the wrong kind of shots in general, but the fact that they like, that's the thing that's sustainable, right? Opponent three point percentage is like, generally like not very controllable but opponent field goal percentage at the rim is i think and i think seeing that carry over where yeah like guys like Mitchell robinson uh nerlens noel i guess has been hurt and hasn't played a ton but taj gibson like can apparently like still really lock it down in the paint like they clearly have an ability to protect the rim which i think will serve their defense well it's just i don't know there's been obviously at the point of attack they've gotten significantly worse with the personnel moves they made in the off season. Um, at the same time, like their offense is better than it was last season. So I just sort of expect it to continue along this pace and for them to be something like a 500 team at the end of the day, you know? Yeah. All right. I had, we're, we're running pretty long here. I had one more that we can just sort of rip through quickly, but we've talked about them on this pod in the past. It's the Mavs. I just, I don't really understand anything about this team. And it's another team, honestly, where like their starters are getting killed and their bench is waxing teams. But unlike the Knicks, where it's like, I look at the Knicks bench and I'm like, yo, that's actually a very, very strong bench. And it's not entirely surprising that they're killing opposing second units. With the Mavs, it's like, yeah, Brunson's great. But um, Brunson's advanced metrics, by the way, this season are like, like stupid. It's funny because sometimes you get like the bench player that, um, is on these killer lineups and is the reason that these lineups are killer, but then his his kind of like on off and advanced metrics just end up off the charts. And yeah. so like if you look at any of the like all purpose or all in one advanced metrics, you know, whether it's Raptor, uh, that LeBron rating, um, real plus minus, like all of that, Jalen Brunson's like top 10 in the entire league across the board this season. That's great. And like, you know, to his credit, obviously most of that's coming off the bench, but when Luca was out, he stepped into the starting lineup yeah. and acquitted himself very well. Like he is such a crafty player. One of the best 
guard finishers in the league, despite being like six foot one. And I think he just got like his passing to me has really improved this season. Uh, He's super shifty with the ball, all credit in the world to Jalen Brunson, but it's like the Mavs are running lineups with him and Trey Burke on the floor. And that is just a Lilliputian backcourt that should not, wow. (laughs) That should not be able to survive defensively, but that somehow pound the thesaurus, (laughs) but like, you know, and and like Frank Nilakina is part of these lineups, like, Sterling Brown, who Sterling Brown's fine. He's a nice player, but I just, I don't really understand why their bench has been so successful and, and why, you know, their starters have struggled the way that they have, to be honest. Like I, I think that'll start to change. Like honestly, Porzingis and Luca haven't had a ton of time to play together because KP was out and then Luca was out and like now they're both back and they looked good. Both of them looked really good in that win over the Clippers. So, you know, maybe there's a chance they're about to like take off here, but uh, it's just a weird team, man. Like I mentioned off the top, they're the only team that is getting to the rim less frequently than the Suns and the Nets are, but they don't have the jump shooting chops that those teams do, which is why I think, you know, while Phoenix and Brooklyn are still making it work with top 10 offenses, despite not getting to the rim, the Mavs very much are not like they're 20th in offense right now. And like, that's, you have Luka Doncic on the team and you're 20th in offense. I feel like something's gone wrong. Yeah. They're also uh, maybe the worst coach team in the league or up there anyway. Yeah. I don't, I, I wouldn't say that necessarily. I actually think they've started to, especially when Luka was out, I, th- I thought they started to do some interesting stuff with Porzingis offensively. Some of it's worked and some of it hasn't, but I think like the, the variation in the ways that they're using him is important and just like sort of getting him a little bit more comfortable doing different stuff. Porzingis um, like, also had a good like couple weeks here really good and i think that's part of like you know they're using him more as like a movement shooter kind of running him off of screens they're using him more at the elbow which is again it's a mixed bag because like the the fake handoffs don't really work for him because he's not i don't think quick enough to like turn the corner after the fake um but i do think he's been like a little bit better as a playmaker and you know, even facilitating out of the post, I think he's been a bit better. Like, I think he's looked good. And defensively, which was like really the big issue for him mm-hmm. last year, I think he's looked a, like a lot closer to being the guy yeah. he was two years ago at that end than he was last year. Like, he, he's moving better. When he's defending at the four, like, I think he's actually navigating space pretty well. Uh, and the lineups with him at the five that were like disastrous defensively last season have been really good defensively this year. It's just yeah. for whatever I think he's reason. he's pretty damn good defensively this year. Yeah. Um, for whatever reason, those those lineups have been terrible offensively, which is like the opposite of what you'd expect. But yeah, maybe that corrects itself over a longer sample size. Yeah, I would think so. And and again, I think just like playing more minutes with like Luca on the floor and him at the five will will change those numbers a lot. But even though like I think their defense is like 17th or 18th, it's not blowing anyone away. But I, I think the process has been pretty good. They're allowing the right kind of shots. They're they're playing a decent amount of zone. They play a one-two-two zone, which is it worked pretty well actually against the Suns. It worked pretty well in that game against the Clippers, although the Clippers started to find some counters for it. But I, I don't mind what they're doing on defense. I just like the offense is weird to me that it's been as poor as it is. So I don't know. I don't know about the Mavs. I don't know what they are. But there it is. The most confounding teams in the NBA this season. I feel like we can wrap it there. Cash, yeah. do you have a fan shout out for us this week? I do. I just want to. I want to make three points before uh, before we. I don't, I don't even need like thoughts on them. I just want to mention them because we okay. we didn't 
we didn't have time to get to any of this, but one uh, ultimate bummer that uh, Michael Porter Jr. and DeAndre Hunter, oh, and, DeAndre, and Hunter. DeAndre Hunter in Atlanta um, are are injured again. And yeah, Dozier in Denver as well. But I, I, Porter and Hunter, it's like these guys can't yeah. stay healthy. It's unfortunate. Um, so I wanted to point uh, that out. And then the other thing I wanted to mention, because we, again, we just a lot, so much has happened. We didn't get to it, even though it was big news. The Kings are now on their 11th coach since they last made the playoffs. If you include interim coaches and just how Kings does it get that a courtside fan pukes on the court and <laughs> poor Slamson the Lion has to help clean it up. That, the one thing that I think was lost in everyone talking about the courtside fan puking, which by the way, like that is as embarrassing as it gets. You're like front row courtside. Everyone's seeing you. You're on all the highlight shows, but as if that wasn't embarrassing enough for the fan and for like the Kings as a franchise, why was Slamson the Lion helping clean it up? I, I need answers on that. That whole situation was just a little too on the nose for the ah, Kings. On um, the snout. I, the Kings very well could have been in this conversation as like one of the more confounding teams. I'm yeah, now kind of thinking Sacramento I, should, Kings. I should have included them. Like what, what on earth is this team? I have no idea. Man, De'Aaron Fox, a player who listeners of this podcast will know on an aesthetic level, I absolutely adore. He's been so disappointing this season, man. Yeah. And like the the continued disinterest in playing defense is starting to really grate on me. Like I yeah. just, a, a player with his physical ability should not, he should be at least a neutral defender. It does. It does make you wonder, man, if just being in that environment too long. Yeah. I mean, like, I, I think that is a worthy question to ask whether being in that environment for too long is detrimental. Yeah, but the, I don't want to like. I don't. That sort of just like strips him of accountability, you know. To no, just and, like, and I'm. Yeah, I, I'm not saying that should be the case. Like, he should still be trying on defense. He's still an NBA player, getting like, and is part of their future. Like, should be part of the reason that culture changes. So I'm not stripping of him accountability, but at a certain point, we also have to ask the question of like, what does that do to a player? What does being in and no disrespect to the city of Sacramento, never been there. Don't I, I, so I don't mean just being in Sacramento. Being with the Kings franchise and that, that all the dysfunction that goes with it. You know, De'Aaron Fox is not the first young player or first player in general to, whether it's lose interest or hit a roadblock, whatever the case may be, in Sacramento, in like as a member of that organization. So, yeah. Um, okay, so sorry, that was two things. What, what was the third thing? Oh, I guess it was only two things. <laughs> Yeah, you know why? Because I was crowning. I I should have said two points, three uh-huh. things like the Porter and Hunter thing, like right. were two different things. Right. Yeah. Well, right. and Colin Sexton also, man, like yes. a huge bummer for for a Cavs team that has been super duper fun this season. Yeah, I don't know. I I guess like I think the the latest prognosis was that that he was going to miss the rest of the season, um, which really sucks. Because uh, actually, I I just have enjoyed sort of watching how he and Garland have developed alongside each other. I think that backcourt was really starting to click, uh, and obviously Mobley being out as well. Just like it's really taken all the wind out of the sails of that team. Uh, it's been one of the more pleasant surprises in the league this season. So that's a major bummer. But uh, okay, if you're satisfied with that, then yes, can you all give right. us a fan shout out? Yes, it's been a long one. 
Uh, I've got a couple for you. Uh, Maddie Gray out in Vancouver, who uh, replied to us on Twitter, actually saying his only complaint is that we don't drop multiple episodes a week. Um, but uh, also when I reached out via DMs, he, he sent a nice note about uh, enjoying the show and saying he, he didn't even need a shout out. He just wanted to more so let us know uh, he likes what we're doing. So thank you, Maddie in Vancouver. Uh, Jonathan Saloni, who I'm pretty sure we've shouted out before, is one of our most loyal listeners, also uh, slid in the IG DMs to mention again that he's a big fan of the show. And then Deshaun on Twitter, at D-S-H-O-N, James Shobbs, who replied on Twitter a couple weeks ago saying he's a big fan of the show and asking uh, how about some Clippers and Paul George talk, given the way they had played, which... We haven't got to that yet in the last couple of weeks, but I still wanted to get Deshaun a shout out. And I'm sure at some point soon, we will talk about Paul George and the Clippers. who The, have... the artist formerly known as the Tin Man. Correct. And, and as you know, the artist formerly known as the Tin Man who had me proudly wearing Clown of the Week honors one, one uh, episode uh, last season. So, although I, to be fair, if anyone who's listened to the show for years knows, I've always praised Paul George during the regular season. Uh, <laughs> All right, I think that's it. And, you know, I, I just realized I just hit three fan shout outs and I still have a couple in the chamber for next week. So people are getting at us. Uh, yeah, I was going to say, I, I know for a fact that we have at least one in the chamber for next week. So uh, if you didn't hear your name called out on this episode, fear not because those shout outs are coming and keep the feedback coming. Uh, it's been great for us to, uh, to see the reception and thank you for sticking with us through all of this. Uh, also, a uh, uh, Happy belated Thanksgiving to our American listeners. I think uh, we're coming up on 90 minutes here. Like I said, we uh, we had basically like two weeks of NBA nitty gritty stuff to catch up on. So we hope that satisfied your hunger, but we're going to leave it there. So for Joseph Cacharo, I'm Joe Wolfon. We will talk to you all next week. Pound the Rock. <laughs>